the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. All right, 934 now. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday morning. Don't forget Peter now coming up in about a half an hour. But right now we are pleased to welcome back to our program Ohio Senator J.D. Vance. Senator Vance, good to talk to you this morning. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing, Bob? Doing well, thank you. Hey, first thing I have to ask, this has apparently become um, an issue for some. Have you ever been near a door in a public building and spotted a little spotted a little small red box on the wall marked in case of fire pull lever and thought to yourself, that's the proper method to open that door? You ever, <laughs> ever have that happen? As as I as all of us learned in elementary school, fire alarms also open doors, Bob, and I am uh, one of one of many people on Capitol Hill that have no idea how to actually operate an emergency uh, an emergency door. No, no, th- this whole thing is is absurd. I will tell you, Bob, when this happened, uh, we were actually in our Senate conference lunch, we were talking, you know, our, our Republican uh, lunch, and we were sort of debating how do we proceed in a way that strengthens the, the hand of House Republicans. And then we get a notice that the Cannon Building, which is a House building, is being evacuated because somebody pulled the fire alarm. And what I immediately say is that's the Democrats because they're trying to delay the vote to apply pressure on us and also give the House Democrats more time to figure out what they're going to do. And a few of my colleagues are like, yeah, that probably is right. And a few of my colleagues are like, oh, J.D., that's a crazy conspiracy. And then, of course, you learn that it's Jamal Bowman pulling the fire alarm. And, and what they were doing, Bob, was explicitly trying to delay House proceedings. Um, that's, that's pretty extraordinary. It's, by the way, illegal. And it's something that I think if the Department of Justice had an ounce of integrity, it might look into. But uh, it's also just hysterical how he's tried to say that he, he just didn't know how to open a door. Well, he also said that, you know, on the contrary to trying to delay the vote, he said, I was in such a rush to make sure I went and cast my vote that, that I was trying to get out a door and I made a mistake and grabbed the wrong thing. So he was saying, I really wanted to cast my vote. That was really what was behind this entire thing. And, and Senator, what you just said needs to be repeated. This was interference with an official government proceeding, which begs the question, how should, should Jamal Bowman be treated in light of the fact that there are hundreds of people who have been accused of interfering with an official government proceeding that are being held in gulags in Washington, D.C. right now awaiting trials? Well, that's a very, very good point, Bob, and I'm sure that many of your listeners have drawn the connection between January 6th detainees, uh, many of whom are accused of no violent crime. Uh, and we're, we're now in a situation where uh, interrupting an official government proceeding is the cause to throw the book at these people. And yet Jamal Bowman, a member of the House of Representatives, is, is, is apparently going to go off scot-free. My favorite thing about this, Bob, is when he received criticism, and actually people started to note that he committed a crime, he accused those people of Nazism for daring to criticize him for breaking the law. These people have basically one move whenever they're criticized. It's, it's to say that their opponents are Nazis, 
you see it with Jamal Bowman, and we're going to see it, unfortunately, uh, I think a lot over the next few weeks. Because, look, Republicans like me, we're not going to stop asking for the law to be applied fairly, and I don't think the Democrats are going to stop whining about it. No, of course they're not. And and his reaction and his office's reaction, uh, just accuse Republicans of being Nazis, is, is, is just par for the course for them. Senator Vance, um, let's get to the continuing resolution. You were one of nine senators to vote no. It was overwhelmingly bipartisan in both uh, chambers. You were one of the no votes. What was behind your decision? Yeah, there, there are a couple of things. Well, first of all, just, this is a process thing that I admit probably 90% of the American people don't care about. But I don't like having these spinning bills that are, you know, this one was about 80 pages, dropped on our desk, they give us hours to read it, and then we're expected to vote on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of spending. I really want us to get back to the regular process where we actually have difficult conversations about what programs need less money, maybe what programs need more money. We at least talk about it as senators and as congressmen and figure this stuff out. That, that's number one. Number two, I don't like that this didn't cut spending at all, Bob. Uh, you know, I recognize that there are some difficult decisions that need to be made. We're going to disagree about how to make those decisions. But look, uh, we didn't cut spending at all as part of this process. Now, I, I will say, Bob, I actually agree. That there are a lot of folks who, you know, I, I sort of consider political fellow travelers who say just shut it down. It's no big deal. Look, shutdowns are painful. We need to be cognizant of that fact. It is not a great thing to shut down the government. But we also need to not give up every ounce of leverage that we have. And, and, and I, I expect, Bob, I hate to say this because I don't think that he deserves it, but I, I expect that this will lead to Kevin McCarthy's ouster from the House of Representatives, and that's going to throw the entire government in chaos. And, and what, what I would say on, on this whole question of, of whether we have continuing resolutions or whether we actually get back to some, some fiscal sanity in this country is, look, whatever you want to say about Kevin McCarthy, and again, I think it's a mistake, one of the reasons why he is facing the motion to vacate is because a lot of House Republicans were promised a, an appropriations process that cut spending, and that didn't actually get delivered. So we, we need to get back to normal government, not this crazy process where bills are dropped on our desk three hours before we have to vote for them. And I think that's really what the controversy with the CR is about. I don't disagree with any bit of that. Um Kevin McCarthy said, though, that we had the final bill that we ended up with because of House Republicans. He said we had um, a very, very conservative. In fact, I think he said it cut spending by eight billion dollars. I'm sorry, eight percent rather. Uh, and uh, he said it was the most conservative, you know, CR that uh, that they had put forth in a very, very long time. He said it also did not have funding for Ukraine, in it, which I'll talk to you about in a moment. But he said there were uh, House Republicans who opposed it. Uh, now, even if every House Republican supported it, and it certainly wouldn't have gotten through on the Senate side. But he said, look, we did deliver a bill that did cut spending by 8%, and we couldn't get it through. What do you want him to do? Well, he, he's right about that, first of all. I mean, they, they, they did try some good continuing resolutions that would have accomplished some, I think, meaningful reforms in our country. The flip side of it, Bob, is, is they accomplished it still through this process where you drop a big bill on people's desk and expect them to vote on it 15 minutes later. There is a rebellion among the sort of rank-and-file membership on both the House and the Senate side against doing government that way. And that, that really is, is the problem here. I don't think the substance of, look, some of the substance of what he proposed is very good, but it's how do you do it? How does the government actually function? Do we sort of, are, do, does each elected representative have a say in how the country governs, or are they forced by leadership at the, at sort of the barrel of a gun under threat of government shutdown to vote yes or no on these things? 
But I think that is sort of the fundamental brokenness of Washington, D.C., is what this is about. We're talking with Senator J.D. Vance this morning on AM 1420, The Answer. So let's go back to McCarthy for a minute. It's gonna, I'm going to tie a whole bunch of things together here, and I'll let you roll on it uh, in response, because I want to ask you about the Ukraine. Obviously, you were pleased with the fact, so was I, that there was no actual new Ukraine funding in this CR that was passed. However, the accusation is, the allegation is, that Kevin McCarthy made a secret side deal and a promise of a new clean bill to to send more money to Ukraine. In fact, Corrine Jean-Pierre on the executive side, speaking for the White House, uh, said that um, they are absolutely preparing an Another Ukraine funding package, and Putin cannot outlast us. We will continue to fund this. So, like I said, I'm lumping a lot of stuff together here. Some say that's the reason why Kevin McCarthy is being, you know, uh, the, the motion to vacate is being put forth. Do you believe that's what's going on here, or is this more personal between Gates and McCarthy? Well, look, there's clearly something personal between Gates and McCarthy. Um, and look, I, I will criticize McCarthy when I think that he deserves it. I do not believe that he promised Democrats they would get sort of clean Ukraine funding. McCarthy's not on, on the Ukraine issue where I am, uh, but he's also not where some of the, the crazy people in Washington, D.C. are either. And I think he genuinely believes we have to focus on our own priorities and not the Ukrainian government right now. Uh, so I, I don't buy that that promise was made. And if you read between the lines of what the Democrats are saying, I don't even think they're saying this promise was made. But look, the reason McCarthy, I think, ultimately will face the motion to vacate, and I, you know, I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm skeptical he survives, is really because, not just because of Gates, but you have sort of a group of 20 Republicans who just think the swamp is fundamentally broken. And the way that Washington governs, the way that it drops these bills, like I said earlier, on people's desks doesn't give them enough time to read it. A lot of people are saying, we refuse to play along with this game anymore. And I, and I think all, all leadership on, on, the, on the Republican side, whether it's Senate leadership or House leadership, is going to have to reckon with the fact that a small minority of Republicans are saying, we're not playing this game anymore. It needs to be a different game. Uh, that, that, of course, is going to ruffle some feathers, but I actually think it will lead to better government. And frankly, I think it will lead to, to much smarter fiscal policy in this country, too. So let's talk more specifically about Ukraine then. You know, uh, virtually every Democrat supports funding Ukraine literally forever uh, without any cap on the amount and without any end, uh, you know, being defined. Um, many Republicans do do as well. It's kind of a it's kind of a split on the Republican side. Explain how what do you, how do you explain to those your position where we should not be funding them? They're calling you a Putin puppet, and anybody who you know opposes funding Ukraine that means you're on the side of Putin. It also means, by the way, that you support China invading Taiwan because that's the message that's being sent here. We won't inv- uh, we won't uh, get ourselves involved if if uh, bigger nations invade and uh, and try to violate the sovereignty of smaller nations. Um, so when when you hear people saying those things, you hear Nikki Haley on a debate stage shrieking about that, that this is in favor of Putin if you don't support this unlimited funding. How do you respond to them, Senator? Well, there are a few things. First of all, the idea that funding Ukraine indefinitely is the way to deter China gets it exactly backwards, Bob. The, the thing the Chinese will be deterred by is whether America has enough weapon systems. I'm talking about long-range artillery shells, missile systems, and so forth. And unfortunately, we don't have enough of that stuff that we make here in America, and we've shipped way too much of it to Ukraine. Just to give you one example, the Patriot missile system, one of the most important deterrents against Chinese aggression in East Asia, is now on a five- to seven-year backlog. So we are actually enabling the interests of the Chinese by sinking so many resources into Ukraine. So people, I think, have that, that exactly backwards. 
The second more fundamental point, Bob, is, is a great lesson of American foreign policy. It's Republicans have made this mistake and Democrats have made this mistake is you have to have a discrete objective in matters of war, whether your own troops are involved or not. What are we trying to do? When are we trying to do it by and how much money will it take to accomplish that thing? The Biden administration has given us no answer. In fact, if you look at some of their declassified briefings, they believe that if we give the Ukraine $100 billion for the next five years, the, the fundamental there will be no real change in the nature of the conflict. So, so what are we doing here? And are we really on the hook for $500 billion more of military aid and then a trillion dollars of redevelopment and reconstruction aid on top of it? I don't think that we can afford it. I don't think that it's in our national interest. Here's a final point, Bob, and I, this is the first time you've heard me make this argument, but I'm going to start making it a lot more frequently. One of the unintended consequences of our Middle East policy over the last 20 years is a massive refugee crisis that destabilized Europe and actually, I think, promoted a lot of terrorism. I'm talking about the Syrian refugee crisis of 2015. Okay, We are about to have a refugee crisis the likes of which the world has never seen because Ukraine and Russia are the breadbasket, not just of Europe, but of Africa and Asia, too. You have 1.5 billion Africans on the continent of Africa who are starving, who are facing serious hunger problems because food is so expensive and it will only get more expensive as this war perpetuates. So are we willing to destabilize Africa and Europe because of a massive refugee problem? We're going down that pathway, Bob, and I fear that nobody is looking at the long-term unintended consequences of this this never-ending conflict. Well, that's a very, very uh, important point, and I don't know that a lot of people are talking. In fact, I don't know anybody who's talking about that. And when I hear you talk about it, Senator Vance, my first thought is how many of them are going to end up in our backyard? Uh, and, and because it, when you hear the word refugee around the world, there is only one place for people to seek refuge. It's not in neighboring countries that are willing to provide it. It's the United States. They've got to come to the United States. So we already have what seven and a half billion new crossers, six billion that they uh, gave um, uh, you know asylum status to, and one and a half billion gotaways that they know about already in two and a half years since Joe Biden was inaugurated. How many of those refugees in the coming refugee crisis you're talking about here are we going to say bring them here? Well, unfortunately, we know the answer, Bob. It's going to be a large number. And if you if you just assume, you know, one in a thousand of these newcomers have some problem, criminal behavior, terrorism, gang activity, then that's how you get the kind of cartel activity that we have on the, on the southern border. And that's how you get something that I think is going to be even worse if we keep on going in this direction. So, so look, I, I'm really worried about this, and not enough people are talking about it. And this is, again, you go back to the Syrian refugee crisis led to the rise of ISIS, led to a lot of terrorism problems all over the world. We've got to be careful about this stuff and not believe that if you destabilize the world's food supply, everything's going to be hunky-dory because it's not. You're right, Bob. People accuse me of being a Putin apologist. I find this hysterical. I have no affection for Vladimir Putin. He's, he's, you know, my, I, I care about America. I think Vladimir Putin's a bad guy. I don't think he should have invaded Ukraine. But we live in the world that we live in, not the one that we wish we lived in. 
And in the world we actually live in, we've got to be smarter about how we deal with this Ukraine war. Yeah, and and it's pretty sad that you cannot offer very cogent arguments the way that you are. These are very logical and very well thought out, and you can't you can't do that without being accused of being on Putin's payroll. You and Tucker, you and Tucker are his, uh, you know, American. Uh, 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 yep. media allies. It's unbelievable. Uh, let's talk about domestic issues for a moment. The UAW strike continues. More workers in more plants are walking off the job each day. It's growing. Are you, what is your feeling about the demands, the, you know, the opening 46% pay raise and 32-hour work weeks for 40-hour paychecks that they're demanding from the, uh, from the automakers? And what role do potential EV mandates play in those negotiations? I know you've got a bill to uh, eliminate the EV subsidies that uh, Biden put through in that Inflation Reduction Act nonsense. Um, what role do the EVs play in all of that? Yeah, I mean, look, first, a lot of people look at the demands and say they're extraordinary. The, the way that I look about it is this is sort of the, the first step of a negotiation. People always ask for more than they think they're ultimately going to get. But if you ask me, do I think the auto workers deserve some kind of pay raise, given where the auto industry's been the last few years? I, I, I fundamentally do, and I think that's, that's what they have to negotiate with the car industry over. I think, to your point, Bob, the deeper problem here is that we are subsidizing an industry, electric vehicle manufacturing, the mining that goes along with it, the battery and components manufacturing that goes along with it, that is still heavily present and dependent on communist China. So we're going to make the same mistake we've made over the last 40 years, which is subsidizing an industry made by Chinese workers instead of American workers. And I I think that's the fundamental issue here is I want auto workers to have higher wages, of course, most importantly, I want them to have a job in five years. And the trajectory we're going down with the Biden administration is these guys are going to have all their jobs shipped to China. It's going to destroy the American auto industry. And then, oh, by the way, it'll, it'll further weaken the manufacturing sector in the United States of America. We've actually got a bill to throw out all the Biden administration EV mandates to, to actually trade them with pro-American jobs and pro-auto industry in America things. And that's, that, 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 that's my basic view on all this stuff. My most important, my most deeply held economic policy conviction is whether it's the budget deficit, whether it's tax policy, all of these things become easier if you have more Americans working in higher wage jobs. And you're not going to do that if you destroy the car industry and ship it to China. No, you're 100% right about that, and I love your, your legislation there on, on, on eliminating those subsidies for EVs. That's one of the reasons I contacted your office to talk to you. But since you just laid it out, and it is so important, the potential, for, I think President Trump said when he talked to the auto workers a, a week ago or so, he said, you know, none of this is going to matter. You're not going to have jobs because these plants are all going to go under uh, unless some serious changes are made. So given that and given the negotiation and the and the difficulties between the, you know, the big three, particularly in the UAW, should government get involved in those negotiations? So far, Biden says he won't. Should they? You know, I, I don't like I don't like it when they did it with the rail workers. I don't like it when they do it here. You know, w- w- workers and companies need to figure this stuff out. And obviously, government sets the rules by which they're negotiating against each other. But I think you shouldn't have the government go in and, and sort of try to force a bargain. It's either going to be too good for the auto workers or too good for the auto industry. And I, I think you got to let the workers and the companies figure this stuff out themselves. Last thing for you, and it's going to tie to what you just said about uh, the potential of shipping, uh, outsourcing auto jobs to uh, to China. 
And we'll go back to the issue about China and Taiwan. While all of that is playing out and so many people are concerned about the potential of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan because of the impact it would have on America because of Taiwan's you know semiconductor production and how important that is, can we not, in the, in the meantime, while all of that is going on and all of the posturing is going on, can we not start to ramp up massively our own semiconductor production so, so Taiwan does not become you know, the make or break for, for the American economy? Well, we should, Bob. That's exactly right. A lot of us are pushing to do exactly that. I, I will say that there are a lot of resources that have been allocated to, to, to sort of support the American semiconductor industry and to get it further and further away from China. One of the problems here, and there are many, but one of the problems here, Bob, this is hard to believe, is that a lot of that money that's been allocated to build the American chip industry is being held up by the Biden administration over progressive politics. This is hard to believe, but if you want to manufacture chips, you want to manufacture the components of chips in America and get resources from the Secretary of Commerce, you have to check the box that you're willing to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. You have to check the box that you're going to have the right family leave policies that the Biden administration wants you to have. And and look, we can debate this stuff and whether it's a good idea, but I think it is absolutely suicidal to be forcing American industries to pretend to be left-wing Democrats in order to get resources to build a native industry here in America. And uh, that's unfortunately a big problem with a lot of Biden administration policy is they say they want to fight China, but only if you're willing to be a woke company. That's not going to work. It's going to destroy American industry, and it's also going to alienate a lot of conservatives like me who want to reshore these jobs but are not willing to pretend that I'm a progressive Democrat in order to do it. Wow. You just touched a live wire right there. That is a very, very important point. No one is talking about that aspect of it. No one is talking about the, uh, the, the, the requirements, as you say, for American companies to do these things. Senator Vance, stand fast on your Ukraine position. I uh, support you, and, and a lot of other people do. That does not make you pro-Putin. It makes you pro-responsible for American security first. America does come first. Senator Vance, thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Okay. Appreciate you. All right. It's uh, 954. That's a huge issue. Why can't we ramp up production of semiconductors in the United States to avoid and to and to end our reliance upon Taiwan's production? Because Biden won't let the companies grow without their diversity, inclusion, and equity crap. That is enormous information from Senator Vance. All right. I've got Vance. Now i got Kersenau. We've got a lot of very important information for you, so stay right here. Go ahead and get yourself a co- coffee. I would say smoke them if you got them, but I don't like smoking. But get yourself a little break here. We've got uh, J.D. Vance, or excuse me, uh, Peter Kersenow following J.D. Vance right here on Always Right Radio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.